Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, let's go. Welcome back. On this episode, we discuss to be or not to be my ancestors and why it may be controversial, but not so profound to say that in public. Professor and author Christopher Cameron is back to help us navigate through this untold story and phenomenon of African-American secular resistance. That and more on where we're Free thoughts, stories, gender, politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, and more ancestors because I carry their burden. I carry their pain and I carry their courage. Though the blood of a slave still runs through my veins, the blood of an abolitionist runs through the same. But I am not my ancestors because we live in a time where standing up for yourself is no longer a crime. No longer do I have to stand idly by while a white man berates me, hurling spit in my eye, knowing that my reaction is never justified because he will always have the law on his side. I am my ancestors because I carry that feeling of showing strength through the struggle with my chin to the ceiling. They try to break my spirit, so they tell me I'm weak. They tell me I'm stupid and that my future is bleak, but I am not my ancestors because I no longer believe that proving them wrong will get me hung from a tree. Though times have changed, some things will never because the clan is still around, but see, they've gotten more clever. No longer are they on horseback burning crosses in the yard. Now they sit in courtrooms giving out sentences with no regard. And see, now they use their justice system to lecture and their prisons for torture. They rebuilding that wall of white supremacy and their laws are the mortar. Their bricks are nightsticks, badges, and guns, and it's painted with a congress who decides what schools to underfund. See, I am my ancestors because we both grew up in a system that keeps equal human rights far off in the distance. But Nat Turner had a mission, and Malcolm X had a vision to stand and fight with persistence when facing any opposition. So I am my ancestors because that warrior spirit makes me scream Black Lives Matter so the whole world can hear us. <laughs> But I cherish my ancestors because I realize my privilege that lets me stand and pick it without ending up like young Emmett. You see, my ancestors' strengths are past my own because in their world, you are quick to atone for any act of strength or defiance that was shown that shows that you are a human and not an appliance for a home. See, my ancestors went through hell to give me a stage, so now I'm more free to meet racism with rage. But the fact that I'm still more likely to end up in a cage shows that their story is not over. But through me, through us, we're turning the page. What is culture? It's generally thought that culture is a people's body of knowledge, beliefs, behavior, goals, social institutions, together with tools, techniques, and material constructions. In Black and African-American communities, 
One of the aspects of an expressed culture has long been our regard for our ancestors, not simply because of the obvious mystery and wonder of life after death, but for reverence of those who came before us and paved the road we trod on. On this, we've inherited and retained much of our culture from West African heritage. In modern West African cultures, even today, we still see the ongoing practice of ancestor worship. Much of society there has dual religious practices and still performs African traditional belief systems rooted in the existence of ancestors through oral tradition. It's a tradition hinged on the philosophy of life and it spans masquerades and ritual culture still practiced by the Igbos and throughout the Caribbean and South America, for example. So what does it mean to be or not to be our ancestors? This is a common refrain I've heard in the last few years, this saying, I'm not my ancestors, I'm gonna do this, or I'm liable to do that, you fill in the blank. Some of our most celebrated entertainers have echoed this sentiment in recent years, and you can see it printed on t-shirts, or it's talked about in clubhouse meetings, or it's circulating all the time in viral videos on social media. Many young people, and some older, who affirm this feel distant and estranged from their history by a cliché of historical narratives of docile, reverential, and accommodationist Negroes of American slavery and the Civil Rights era. But is this right? Is this the correct lens with which to look at our past and those who fought or endured before us? Or have we bought into a false, hyper-sanitized, decades-long historical shorthand force-fed to us with the help of corporate media, public school propaganda, a false sense of security with black middle-class gains in a post-civil rights America, and feel-good sermonizing about obedience and redemption? Which one is it? Over the last few years, leading the historical confusion about this landscape has been a disproportionate amount of prominent, outspoken, straight black men. Producer, artist, and songwriter of Happy, Pharrell Williams, dubbed himself leader of the New Blacks in 2015 and particularly espoused the virtue of not blaming other races for our issues. He said the New Black dreams and realizes that it's not pigmentation, it's a mentality. And it's either going to work for you or it's going to work against you. And you've got to pick the side that you're going to be on. And then there was Snoop Dogg, a true culture warrior and defender of upstanding black nobility just a few years back. No he said this. I can't watch no motherfucking more black movies where niggas getting dogged out, 12 years of slave, Roots, Underground. I can't watch none of that shit. I'm sick of this shit. How the fuck they gonna put Roots on on Memorial Day? They gonna just keep beating that shit in our heads or how they did us, huh? I mean, I don't understand America. They just want to just keep showing the abuse that we took hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But guess what? We taking the same abuse. Think about that part. When y'all gonna make a motherfucking series about the success that black folks is having? The only success we have is Roots and 12 Years a Slave and shit like that, huh? Fuck y'all, I ain't watching that shit. And I advise you motherfuckers that's real niggas like myself, fuck them television shows. In 2015 on The Daily Show, while promoting the movie Selma, Rapper Icon Common likened American race relations to a difficult romantic relationship. Let's just get past this. I tried to find the interview of this, but it's been completely scrubbed from the internet. But the quote still lives. Common said, We all know there's been some bad history in our country. We know that racism exists. I'm extending a hand. 
And I think a lot of generations and different cultures are saying, hey, we want to get past this. We've been bullied and we've been beaten down, but we don't want it anymore. We're not extending a fist and saying, hey, you did us wrong. It's more like, hey, I'm extending my hand in love. Let's forget about the past as much as we can and let's move on from where we are right now. How can we help each other? Can you try to help us because we're going to help ourselves too? That's really where we are right now. Me as a black man, I'm not sitting here like white people y'all did us wrong, Common continued. I mean, we know that that existed. I don't even have to bring that up. It's like being in a relationship and continuing to bring up the person's issues. How common? And I'd be completely remiss if I left out this gentleman. Talking about free thought, he talked about his politics, and then he made these very controversial comments about slavery. When you hear about slavery for 400 years, for 400 years, that sounds like a choice. <laughs> like, you was there for 400 years and it's all of y'all? You know, like, it's like we're, we're mentally in prison. I like the word prison because slavery goes too, too direct to the uh, idea of blacks. It's like slavery, Holocaust, Holocaust Jews, uh, slavery is blacks. Right, 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 right. I'm not trying to quiet your voices, actually. So I don't want to say that in an improper way. I just haven't had the time to word it in the most elegant way possible. So, so that's a Stephen move. When Harriet Tubman, well, Harriet Tubman never actually freed the slaves. She just had the slaves go work for other white people. Y'all, we leave it right now. These statements made by prominent black heterosexual influential men in American entertainment are conscious and subconscious rebukes of our ancestors. And they've been trending topics within the culture for a long time. They thrive on silence and a healthy combination of bad information about who we are and who we've been to each other, historically speaking. The truth is we don't know nearly enough about the myriad of lived experiences of our ancestors during those times and beyond. Many of us are just busy living our lives and trying to survive through socioeconomic, geographic, legislative, heteronormative, and hyper-religious environments often not set up for us to be comprehensively educated on our own history, its diversity, and its twists and turns. As a result, the truth is, there's no way we could know our ancestors nearly half as well as we think we do, and far less than we should. As we attempt to draw some meaning about who we are and our legacy and our ancestors, let's recall one of the customs of the Igbo people in the roles that every person has to play as a community. The very notion that I am because we are. So here to help us recast our notion of community and connection to our ancestors, the ones that fought, dissented, that wrote, rebuked, organized, that sang, that loved, that argued, and resisted, is Professor Christopher Cameron. Now, if you missed him in episode two, Christopher is a professor of history and interim chair of Africana Studies at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and is the author of Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism. We'll rejoin him in this second talk with us from the 2020 Legacy Program as he sets the record straight on who we are and why we still very much are our ancestors. Guess what? We've got mail. 
or should I say, where we're headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, our show website is www.podbean.com. Okay, Nola, the Puritan one with Paula. Ciao. This is fire. I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. I, I can relate. introduction and for the wonderful work that you do uh, with Black Nonbelievers DC. Um, I'm really happy to be here uh, with you all again um, for the first talk in this series. I primarily focused on the fourth chapter uh, of Black Freethinkers and I talked about um, the intersections between uh, secularism and the civil rights and Black power movements of the 1960s uh, and early 1970s. I'll talk about that a little bit towards the tail end, but I'll focus on it uh, quite a bit less than I did uh, that day. So I can give you more of um, a, a general overview uh, of the long history of black free thought spanning um, about 175 years from the early 19th century uh, up through the black power movement in the 1970s. Um, I became interested in this project about eight years ago uh, in 2012. Uh, for me, this is sort of a personal and a professional project. So I am a free thinker myself. I am an atheist and I have been uh, for about 10 years. Um, and probably about a couple of years into my journey as an atheist, you know, it, it was fairly uh, isolating that I didn't know a lot of other um, black atheists or agnostics. So I found myself sort of trying to search for a, a sense of community and to search for some like-minded people and, and connect with them on Facebook and, and Twitter and whatnot. Um, and, and in that sort of search for a black free thought community, you know, I started to come across uh, black non-believers, which had been fairly recently created at that point. Um, but I also came across sort of random blog posts, uh, YouTube videos, things like that on individual black free thinkers. So a lot of the people that kind of show up in my book, I would find, you know, a, a 1500 word blog post on one of them, right? Hubert Harrison, for example. Um, so I saw that there was some information out there and I started to get a sense when I really did some digging that, that you know, this history was much more widespread. This phenomenon of black free thought was much more widespread than historical scholarship on African-American religion and African-American intellectual history would have us believe, right? I, I had um, read deeply in um, the history of black religion for my first book, which focused on sort of the intersections of Puritanism and black abolitionist thought in the 18th and 19th centuries. So I was really familiar with, with works, especially in early America on African-American religion, yet I had come across really no mentions 
um, of atheism or agnosticism among slaves or free blacks in early America, and very little mention of those groups in uh, the 20th century, even though I was finding they, they were becoming increasingly widespread uh, during that 20th century. Now, um, in, in the quotation that, that Rogers read, uh, he noted that, you know, one of my, um, one of the things that I found is that among scholars who do African American history, I think this politics of respectability has certainly been one of the factors that's, that's led to sort of an ignoring um, of the history of Black free thought, at least uh, among scholars, right? But I think there are some other reasons as well. And one is this notion that um, this long-standing notion, not just among Black scholars, um, but really among Americans in general, that African Americans are naturally religious, right? Um, that the black church has always been at the center of the black community, that it's the most important institution in the community. Um, and it's a belief that, you know, in, in the course of um, researching this book, I found has its roots in the 19th century abolitionist movement. So in his very influential 1835 book entitled Slavery, the Unitarian minister, William Ellery Channing, noted of uh, Southern slaves that, of all the races of men, the African is the mildest and most susceptible of attachment. He loves where the European would hate. He watches the life of a master whom the North American Indian in like circumstances would stab to the heart. The African is affectionate. And the primary reason for this supposedly loving and affectionate nature of African-Americans in Channing's view was uh, that he said, quote, the colored race are said to be peculiarly susceptible of the religious sentiment. Now, um, a scholar of black religion named Curtis Evans notes in his book, The Burden of Black Religion, that both abolitionists in the 19th century and pro-slavery thinkers alike appropriated Channing's argument about um, sort of the primacy of black religiosity. Um, and this reasoning really reinforced this 19th century view that Blacks are naturally religious, um, and it's continued to influence perceptions of African-American religiosity since that time. And again and again, whether we're looking at um, articles by white free thinkers like Eugene McDonald in The Truth Seeker, uh, whether we're looking at testimony um, in, uh, in uh, the US Congress in the 1950s uh, before the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, whether we're looking in black popular culture or just American popular culture more broadly, we see this idea again and again coming up of African-Americans being uh, overly religious or being naturally religious. And it's something that I think has caused people to, to not even consider that there might be a long and vibrant tradition uh, of African-American free thought. Now, I can't um, go too, too in depth into that tradition in the next 35 minutes or so, but I'll try to give you um, a, a good sort of overview of the key themes in the history of Black free thought from the early 19th century um, up through the uh, civil rights movement. So uh, let's start with the origins. I found um, while I was doing research, especially in slave narratives, in travel accounts to the South, in uh, newspapers 
from um, black activists and abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, um, uh, as well as just free thought papers like The Truth Seeker. Um, I, I found in the course of this research that African-American free thought arose in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, and we see in, in this, these origins a key distinction right from the start, uh, a key distinction between black and white free thinkers. So if we're looking at the ideology of really well-known white free thinkers like Thomas Paine, right, uh, in the 1790s, or uh, Robert Owen and Francis Wright in the 1820s and 1830s, we, we can sort of trace their um, anti-religiosity to uh, Enlightenment philosophy, to Enlightenment science, some were kind of religious liberals and then moved uh, a bit more on the spectrum towards uh, deism and secularism. Um, but generally we're looking at for white free thinkers, the origins of that movement being in religious liberalism and enlightenment science. But black free thought grew pretty directly out of the institution of slavery and the conditions that blacks endured within it. Right. So on a day to day basis, um, African-Americans embrace free thought because of the a sort of inability to resolve the problem of evil, which is um, sort of incredibly prevalent throughout their daily lives. Right. They, these are people who are witnessing um, savage beatings and whippings. They're witnessing people being um, sexually assaulted. They're witnessing their family members or they're experiencing themselves being sold away uh, at a whim, right? Because their master lost a card game uh, or something like that. And so the idea starts to arise that there cannot be a just and benevolent and all-knowing God who actually loves me and cares about uh, my interests. If there was, then I would not be stuck uh, in this hell of slavery uh, in the United States, right? Um, so uh, slave narratives became especially important for my research. Um, you know, for decades, historians have been using these narratives to document multiple aspects um, of the black religious experience. But I found in reading uh, for this probably 15 to 20 or more um, autobiographies of slaves and formerly enslaved people, um, I found that these narratives also speak to the presence of atheism within 19th century slave communities. So uh, one formerly enslaved man, Austin Stewart, uh, for example, uh, immediately after discussing uh, a brutal whipping that his master administered on his sister uh, on a Sabbath morning, he asks in his narrative, can anyone wonder that I and other slaves often doubted the sincerity of every white man's religion? Can it be a matter of astonishment that slaves feel that there is no just God for the poor African?" So this is a, a theme that comes up again and again in both slave narratives and the accounts of travelers to the South, people like Daniel Payne, who would um, later in the 19th century become a bishop in the AME church. But in the 1830s, 1840s, he was a teacher and just sort of a regular minister traveling to the South and observing conditions on plantations. And this, this theme keeps coming up again and again where you see slaves who are um, experiencing these brutal punishments and this is causing them to question uh, the idea of God. And this is sort of helping to spread 
um, atheism and secularism on these 19th century plantations. Um, another key development that sort of fostered the growth um, of African-American atheism was the rise of pro-slavery religion. And these are just sort of religious justifications and theological justifications for the institution of slavery. Um, and this is something that would become more of a coherent body of thought uh, among Southern intellectuals and among Southern slaveholders. Uh, after the 1830s. And it sort of arose and grew strength in large part because of the growing strength of the abolitionist movement in the 1820s and the 1830s, right? So um, early in the 1830s, uh, on January 1st, 1831, William Lloyd Garrison began to publish his uh, Liberator magazine, a publication that would um, you know, put out weekly issues for the next 34 years until slavery was abolished uh, in 1865. A couple of years later, the American Anti-Slavery Society was formed uh, in Boston in 1833. We start to see a great sort of flowering um, institutionally of the abolitionist movement, a proliferation of uh, anti-slavery publications, more people traveling around the country giving speeches, uh, attacking slavery, writing more books, putting together more petitions. So Southern slaveholders start to feel that their institution is under attack, right? And religious and theological justifications for slavery, right? Drawing off things like um, the curse of Ham and, and other biblical texts, these really start to gain strength in the 1830s and 1840s, um, as well as the type of preaching that um, is trying to sort of introduce slaves to God, but at the same time keep them in their place uh, as bondmen and bondwomen in this world, right? So the type of preaching where, uh, you know, slaves are going to church and they have a separate service for them. Um, and they're not necessarily learning uh, all of the kind of theological and religious lessons that their white counterparts would have learned, right? They're going to church and being preached to and the ministers telling them, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. So they're basically getting messages that are trying to sort of use religion to strengthen the institution of slavery. So that type of preaching, as well as the increasing uh, proliferation of pro-slavery religion becomes another sort of key uh, justification and a key factor um, in helping to spread atheism uh, among 19th century slave communities. Now, um, aside from the free thinker Frederick Douglass, what we usually see during the era of slavery um, among many Blacks was not necessarily the type of secular humanism um, that would uh, be characteristic of white free thinkers, but rather just kind of strict atheism or agnosticism. Uh, and, you know, they, they were skeptics regarding the existence of God, but because of their positionality as enslaved people, they didn't necessarily have the means to try to um, help improve the lives of other people. But when we do see some of these individuals like William Wells Brown and Frederick Douglass that are religious skeptics, when we do see them gaining their freedom, they're certainly very active in abolitionist, uh, women's rights, um, and other kind of political and social causes uh, of their day. 
So um, the first chapter of the book talks about these sort of origins uh, during the 19th century. And from there, I move into um, talking about the uh, era of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, also known as the New Negro Renaissance. And this is where we see uh, sort of a great flowering of Black free thought. And we start to see free thought develop uh, quite a bit. Um, one of the key differences that we see in the 1920s up through uh, the 1940s is that um, rather than having somebody who wrote a slave narrative comment on other slaves who were atheists or agnostics, right, uh, partially as an argument for why we shouldn't have slavery in the country, during the Harlem Renaissance, you start to see free thinkers, uh, black free thinkers, that are using their own work to articulate their own ideas rather than just sort of commenting um, and pointing out the irreligiosity of other black free thinkers. Now, um, the Harlem Renaissance was a cultural and intellectual movement that arose in the late 19 teens and early 1920s. And um, it had its developments, uh, it had its sort of origins and other developments, especially the Great Migration from the South, which saw uh, roughly one and a half million Black Southerners migrate uh, to the urban North from um, 1914 up through the end of the 1920s, right? They're, they're moving North, um, trying to escape racism in the South, but also moving for uh, greater economic opportunities, right? During World War I, a lot of white workers um, are being are going into the army and serving in Europe. Uh, so blacks are coming from the South to take their place in factories in Chicago and Detroit um, and New York City and whatnot. Um, and you also see after the end of World War I, a sort of um, staunch racial backlash uh, from, from whites throughout the United States. This is a period, especially that uh, the sort of infamous Red Summer of 1919, this is a period that saw uh, a massive increase in the number of uh, race riots throughout the United States. You would see um, black soldiers who had served uh, in Europe in World War I, who had served in part because they thought this would be making an argument for uh, citizenship and for equality when they returned back home, right? If they went to sort of fight to make the world safe for democracy, they're coming back and they're being attacked in their military uniforms when they uh, arrive at train stations um, all throughout the country. Right now, what this backlash does is it doesn't completely do away with um, sort of traditional political activity and political organizing, but it does cause a number of activists and intellectuals to look for different ways of helping to bring about uh, racial equality in the United States. And so you had some folks like um, Charles Johnson, um, you had some folks like W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and others pushing for more um, kind of cultural approaches to solving racism, right? Um, and, and arguing that, uh, that African-Americans can sort of prove their equality, prove their fitness uh, for American citizenship um, by, uh, you know, writing great poetry, 
by writing uh, the next great American novel through the theater, right, through artwork uh, and things like this. So the great migration uh, of black Southerners to the North, as well as the sort of racist backlash that we see during the red summer of 1919 would help to sort of um, inaugurate uh, the Harlem Renaissance, one of the sort of greatest flowerings of um, African-American literary and cultural life uh, that we've seen in the United States. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person. You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life, in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast where we're headed you can find out more at americanhumanist.org and blacknonbelievers.org that's the american humanist association at americanhumanist.org and on facebook search us at black nonbelievers of dc and black nonbelievers at blacknonbelievers.org find us online support today check us out What I found is, I, you know, I was initially introduced to some of the secular leanings of some of these Renaissance writers back, you know, eight years ago when I was first reading through some blogs and, and watching short presentations that I found online. Um, and, and so after I'd seen, you know, a couple of references to like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston uh, being free thinkers, I basically just started to read everything that I could. Uh, from Harlem Renaissance writers. And what I found is that quite a few of them uh, were actually free thinkers, including um, Elaine Locke, the um, man widely known as the father of the Harlem Renaissance, um, James Weldon Johnson, right, author of the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, um, Nella Larson, uh, the poet Claude McKay, and others. Free thought uh, and secular themes are really rife throughout um, a, a lot of the, the sort of liter literary productions um, of these writers. Nella Larson um, is uh, particularly intriguing to me because her work really kind of helped to inaugurate the ties between feminism uh, and free thought, um, especially her novel Quicksand, which she published in 1928. Um, that novel uh, focuses on Helga Crane, who was widely at the time believed to be modeled off of Larson herself. Um, and the novel, right from the start, it opens up articulating Helga Crane's um, dissatisfaction with American Christianity, uh, with religion in general, right? In the first couple of pages of the novel, Helga, who is um, a teacher at a school called Naxos, an anagram of Saxon uh, down south. This is a black school that's 
basically a composite of two schools that Larson herself attended, uh, Fisk University and Tuskegee University. Um, so Naxos is supposed to be sort of representative of one of these um, Southern uh, HBCUs, right? Um, and in the opening pages of the book, Helga Crane is having to go along with other teachers and students to the school chapel uh, where she has to listen to a sermon from uh, a traveling uh, white uh, minister, right? And um, the minister is basically saying, um, you know, you Naxos Negroes, you, you are better than other Blacks um, throughout the country, right? And it's because you guys are not sort of agitating things politically, right? You're not trying to sort of rile up uh, race relations and things like that. You um, uh, Blacks at Naxos, you know your place. That's why I like you guys, right? Um, so Helga Crane is really mortified and she would end up leaving Naxos uh, fairly soon. Um, she would travel to Chicago, which is actually where uh, Larson herself grew up. Um, and she's a newcomer in Chicago. So she thinks, all right, well, I'll be able to meet some people uh, at this uh, black church. I think it was like a Presbyterian or black Methodist church, something like that. She thought she'd be able to meet some people, maybe get some help finding a job, whatnot. And she was basically snubbed, right? Um, so in the first couple of chapters, right, she, she's gotten these patronizing sermon, uh, this patronizing sermon from a white minister. She cannot find any sense of community um, among uh, black Christians in Chicago. Um, and then later on in the book, after a number of different experiences, traveling to Europe, uh, coming back um, to Harlem, where uh, a lot of folks from the South were migrating uh, during this great migration, um, she would end up making a really rash decision in sort of a moment where she was spurned by a former lover. Um, she had like stumbled on accident into the storefront church in Harlem. She would make a rash decision to marry uh, a revival preacher named the Reverend Mr. Pleasant Green. Um, moved down to Alabama, and within three years, she had four children, one kid, a set of twins, and then after the fourth children, she's basically sitting there on her deathbed, um, and she realized that she had completely ruined her life in converting to Christianity, um, in marrying the reverend, right, because these are, these are seen as this is just what you do, right, you convert, you become a Christian, uh, you get married, you have kids, you live this sort of normal uh, or heteronormal life. Um, and she's, she's sitting in bed after having this fourth child, not knowing whether she's even going to live. Um, and Larson writes of Helga, with the obscuring curtain of religion rent, she was able to look about her and see with shocked eyes this thing she had done to herself. She couldn't even blame God for it now that she knew he didn't exist, right? So because of her, um, because of her experiences in marrying the reverend, she uh, eventually came to disbelieve in God, right? She, she had been very skeptical uh, in the earlier part of the novel. Now she becomes an atheist towards the end, and she really rejects the uh, sort of normative family structures. She rejects the um, influence of patriarchy uh, in black communities. And she really kind of ties in religion with patriarchy as something that uh, is oppressing women, right? That ca is causing her to sort of sink uh, into this quicksand, right? 
So I, I say she kind of inaugurated the ties between feminism and free thought um, in that by sort of linking um, religion with patriarchy, uh, with heteronormativity. She's saying this is something that oppresses women and for women to have true equality uh, in this country, they need to sort of slough off um, belief in God. We see uh, similar themes in the work of uh, Zora Neale Hurston, right, and some of her anthropological work, um, as well as, uh, ironically enough, their eyes were watching God, right, which is also sort of a kind of a feminist novel. Um, I was most interested in, in doing my research on Hurston in uh, her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, which she published in 1943. And probably more than any other Harlem Renaissance thinker, she really kind of clearly lays out her problems with religion. Now, uh, Hurston had grown up in Eatonville, Florida. She was the daughter of um, a Baptist minister in, in Eatonville. Um, so, you know, she grew up in the church, but she writes in her autobiography that she was questioning religion from a very young age. Um, and she had questions about sort of God's omniscience and God's power, but she sort of stifled these questions because she felt that they would sort of harm her efforts at building community, harm her efforts at making friends that she would be sort of looked at uh, as a pariah. That's another thing that comes up is that some people are really hesitant uh, to be open about their religious beliefs uh, while they're young or while they're in their sort of smaller Southern communities. And this is one of the reasons why the Harlem Renaissance becomes such a formative moment in the history of Black free thought, because you have people like Zora Neale Hurston, who had grown up in Eatonville, couldn't really be as open about her beliefs there. You have folks like Langston Hughes growing up in Joplin, Missouri, same situation, right? He comes to disbelieve in God uh, around 13, 14 years old, but it's not something that he can really um, be open and vocal about where he is in his small community out in Joplin. But when all of these intellectuals and creative types, artists and writers, when they're finally coming together in Harlem in the early 1920s and you know, they're going to Columbia University like Langston Hughes uh, did and Zora Neale Hurston did. They're taking classes from free thinkers like Franz Boas, whom, with whom Hurston uh, worked in her anthropology degree. Um, and and they're, they're now able to be more open and more vocal about their religious skepticism, right? I came across some evidence um, while doing research on A. Philip Randolph, um, a sort of socialist free thinker that um, while, you know, most blacks in Harlem were going to church on Sunday morning, a lot of black free thinkers would gather in A. Philip Randolph's room and they would sort of uh, debate and talk about politics and economics and um, their problems with theology and their issues. Uh, with the church and how to sort of build a vibrant socialist and labor movement uh, during the early 1920s. So it's sort of like an anti-church gathering um, in A. Philip Randolph's uh, living room every Sunday morning uh, through the afternoon. But they're, they're now able to sort of build community and be with each other and share some of their ideas and refine um, some of their ideas. So um, free thought secularism would become pretty widespread uh, throughout writers and thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance. But at the same time, you had 
um, a number of black radical thinkers who uh, were not afraid of engaging in sort of traditional overt politics, who didn't really care about the white backlash, um, who really embraced uh, kind of traditional and even more radical um, political opportunities during the 19-teens up through the 1930s. So the third chapter of the book focuses on the ties between Black free thought uh, and Black socialists and communists uh, during roughly a 25-year stretch from 1910 up through 1935. Um, there are a number of prominent sort of Black communist intellectuals uh, and activists during this time period. Louise Thompson Patterson uh, was one. She was married to a, a prominent black lawyer named William Patterson. Uh, he was a lawyer for the NAACP. Hubert Harrison was sort of a towering black intellectual um, of this time period. Uh, Harry Haywood was sort of the leading um, black communist uh, in the sort of mid uh, 1920s on, he was likewise uh, a black free thinker, as uh, were some names that um, are probably more familiar to, to a lot of people like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, as well as Richard Wright. Um, now, the socialists and communists were uh, appealing to black intellectuals and to black political activists uh, for a number of reasons, right? Um, at least ideologically, they downplayed issues of race in favor of economics, right? So as long as you were a part of the working class, um, at least in theory, then you could be a part uh, of these movements. Whereas you saw, you, you, you would see the Democratic and Republican parties um, specifically trying to sort of speak to racial issues and to, to sort of animate racial divisions and tensions um, in, in order to gain more adherence and to win office, right? Uh, socialists and communists kind of downplayed those. Communists as well seem to sort of show up uh, more for, um, for African-Americans. So for example, when the Scottsboro Boys uh, in 1932, this is a group of nine young African-American men who were falsely accused uh, of raping a white woman. When um, they were arrested and put on trial, um, the Communist Party was right there, sort of front and center, helping to fund their legal defense, helping to send their um, mothers and, and parents on speaking tours um, to sort of drum up funds for their defense as well. Um, so uh, these, these sort of political ideologies became increasingly appealing to African-Americans and also socialists and communists were generally non-religious or even actively anti-religious, right? So in 1926, the Communist International, which is sort of like the governing body for world communism, um, put out a directive that said, we expect communists around the world to be atheists. Um, and it was really the case that at, at most communist meetings, um, at least in the northern United States, um, they were highly critical uh, of religion. Um, if, if, you, if you were known to uh, be a church goer or a church member, um, you could face discipline or expulsion from the Communist Party. So for individuals who may have been 
um, who may have been religious skeptics before becoming socialists or communists, you can see why these parties would have been attractive to them in their sort of anti-religiosity. And then for some, it was sort of the other way around where they sort of joined up with socialists and communists for uh, kind of political reasons and, and economic reasons, and then kind of adopted uh, the secular perspective uh, of those parties. Um, so uh, socialism and communism would really sort of go hand in hand with secularism, right? And socialists and communists, like especially Hubert Harrison um, and Louise Thompson Patterson would be highly critical of the ties between uh, capitalism and Christianity. This is sort of a key theme that we see in the speeches and in the writings uh, of black communist freethinkers, right? That uh, capitalism and Christianity uh, work hand in hand uh, to oppress black people, not only in the United States, but throughout the globe, right? A lot of um, prominent uh, black communist and socialist freethinkers um, you know, we're not homegrown African-Americans. Many migrated uh, from the Caribbean, for example. Hubert Harrison uh, was one of those. Uh, W.A. Domingo uh, was another one. Richard B. Moore was a really prominent uh, Black socialist and free thinker who had likewise migrated from the Caribbean. So they're, they're sort of expanding their critique beyond African-Americans and showing how capitalism and Christianity work to not only oppress Blacks within the United States, but are also sort of the twin evils that are helping to reinforce the oppression of Black people in the Caribbean and uh, throughout Africa, right? They thought that, they argued that capitalism and Christianity really played a central role in colonialism uh, by European nations within uh, or on the African continent. Um, so that third chapter really looks, uh, like I said, at this period from the 19 teens up through uh, the 1930s and the early 1940s, uh, ending with uh, some of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, who over his long life would um, sort of would go from uh, being a socialist, probably from the 1890s up through the 1930s or so. Uh, and then he would sort of move more towards communism uh, from the 1930s towards the end of his life. So we see Du Bois kind of growing increasingly radical uh, over the course of his life. And for him, like, like Hubert Harrison and, and other uh, black socialists and communist thinkers, he sort of made the same critique, both in the pages of uh, The Crisis, which was the uh, magazine of the NAACP that he edited, as well as his autobiography and, um, and even unpublished letters, he would make these same critiques that he thought capitalism and Christianity were sort of the, the two main reasons why African Americans and African peoples more broadly remained oppressed uh, throughout the globe. This is your host, Roger, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. 
You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every legacy video from season one and season two there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online. So uh, talking uh, about what I really focused on quite a bit more in that first talk, uh, namely um, black free thought during the civil rights era. Um, now the civil rights movement of uh, the 50s and 60s is often portrayed as a religious movement. Um, and you know, that, that, is, that portrayal has its grounding in a lot of truth, right? It, it certainly is the case that um, churches were important meeting spaces uh, for activists. It's certainly the case that um, black religious figures were sort of front and center in a lot of uh, civil rights protests. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was exclusively a religious movement or even overwhelmingly uh, a religious movement. And I think when we kind of combine uh, the civil rights and black power movements into one sort of overall black freedom struggle, we can actually see uh, the influence of secularism to a much greater extent um, than, than scholars uh, and, and even popular culture has led us to uh, believe. So one of the key civil rights organizations that, that emerged in um, 1961 was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, you know, like the NAACP or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, SNCC, uh, SNCC sort of uh, initially was led by Christian activists such as John Lewis, who were highly committed to the philosophy of nonviolence. But really within a couple of years, the philosophy and approach of SNCC would start to change. And this was especially the case after um, James Foreman uh, and Stokely Carmichael rose to prominence within SNCC. Um, so Foreman had grown up in rural Mississippi. He uh, served time in the military. Um, he attended college in Chicago. Um, he had had sort of a uh, dramatic kind of anti-conversion experience um, when he was 12 years old. And this is another theme that we see kind of recurring throughout the writings of Black freethinkers, especially uh, Richard Wright, um, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes. So he, he writes in his autobiography, The Making of Black Revolutionaries, that he, uh, when he was 12 years old, he was um, visiting his grandmother, um, attending her Baptist church, uh, and there was a revival service right there. Um, he's up on the mourner's bench uh, with some of the other um, young, some of his young friends. Um, and uh, his friends shouted out that they had gotten religion, right? Older people shouted out that they had gotten religion too. Um, and he writes that at the age of 12, I didn't have the courage to tell my grandmother that I thought this was all nonsense. So he looked around, he saw what was happening. He saw like, what people were doing when they were saying they were converted. And he said, I too could fabricate some tears in this emotionally charged atmosphere. So I covered my face with my handkerchief and cried, Lord have mercy, it worked. I was taken off the mourner's bench and the people talked of how many children got saved that day by the grace of the Lord. Now he, he kind of highlights this moment as 
foundational in his non-belief, whereas, of course, it was supposed to be uh, the moment where he accepted Jesus into his heart and became a born-again Christian. And his atheist perspectives would develop after studying philosophy at, at Wilson Junior College in Chicago, and he would bring this secular perspective to his civil rights activity. Um, he became the executive secretary of SNCC in 1963 and would ground his um, activism in secular humanism, because, largely because he believed that Christianity was a prime reason that African-Americans were in a subordinate position in the United States. And he writes very clearly in his autobiography that he feels religion has hurt his people. Right. He feels that uh, black religion especially was too otherworldly um, and that it caused people to look to God to solve problems and not necessarily to organize um, and become politically engaged themselves. Right. Um, now, in 1966, James Foreman, along with Stokely Carmichael, would lead the transition of SNCC from a religious to a secular organization, and they would help to inaugurate the Black Power Movement. And the main goals of that movement were promoting Black economic advancement, um, pride in Black culture, independent um, Black political action, and armed self-reliance or a rejection of nonviolence. Um, now, Carmichael isn't necessarily um, placed uh, usually in the kind of pantheon of Black freethinkers, the few that, that we might generally have known about. Um, but nevertheless, he was uh, an atheist and, and he developed his atheism at a fairly young age. Um, Carmichael, like, like a lot of other black radicals, especially in, in the 20s and 30s, uh, was an immigrant uh, from Trinidad, but he had grown up in the Bronx. He lived in the Bronx since the time he was 10 years old. Um, and he ended up attending the prestigious Bronx High School of Science, um, where he uh, befriended um, a kid named Gene Dennis, whose father worked in the Communist Party. Uh, Carmichael began attending meetings of the Young Communist League um, and he quickly embraced atheism. So he was someone who came to communism for political purposes, but then started to um, sort of embrace their, um, their religious skepticism and their atheism. And like James Foreman, this is a perspective that he would kind of bring to his civil rights uh, work and his work as one of the founders of uh, the Black Power Movement in the 1960s and in ensuing decades. Now, um, the main institutional expression of black power, which is an ideology or a sort of set of ideas, but the main institutional expression of this ideology would be uh, the Black Panther Party. This is a secular uh, organization um, founded in Oakland, California in 1966 by uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Um, Major sort of programs of the Black Panther Party included health clinics, free breakfast for children. Um, they also embraced uh, the focus on armed self-defense of advocates of Black power. Um, but they also uh, started sort of job training, uh, funds for legal defense. 
um, and basically things to sort of empower uh, African-Americans, right? To put the ideology of black power into practice uh, on the ground. And many prominent leaders, uh, as well as rank and file members of the Black Panther Party, including um, Huey Newton, Stokely Carmichael, David Hilliard, and Eldridge Cleaver were sort of very outspoken in their atheism. Like earlier thinkers, they saw the church as conservative uh, and they advanced a humanist politics that rejected the authority of what they termed uh, derisively Uncle Tom bootlicking preachers. Now, along with the Black Panther Party, we see a sort of a renewed literary and intellectual movement uh, during this period that sort of drew from Black power. Uh, and this was known as the Black Arts Movement, which lasted roughly a decade from the mid-1960s through the mid-1970s. And like the earlier Harlem Renaissance, a lot of uh, writers and thinkers of the Black Arts Movement would likewise embrace free thought, including uh, James Baldwin, right, who would explore um, secular themes and, and um, anti-religious themes in multiple works, including The Fire Next Time, Blues for Mr. Charlie, uh, and Go Tell It on the Mountain. And these sort of really demonstrate strongly the influence of his own personal rejection uh, of Christianity. Uh, along with Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry was another important writer of the Black Arts Movement and somebody whose secularism uh, sort of heavily influenced her literature. And so what we see among these writers of the Black Arts Movement is um, they're not sort of writers who just happen to be atheists, right? But they're writers who, they're, they're writers whose um, atheism really strongly influences what they choose to write about, right? In Blues for Mr. Charlie, uh, for example, um, James Baldwin really kind of goes in on the strong ties that he sees between uh, racism and Christianity, as well as in looking at black religiosity, he like has one of the characters really strongly critique this sort of otherworldly uh, tendencies in black religion, as well as the tendencies uh, from his perspective of uh, African-Americans to basically forgive their enemies and to uh, forgive racists for what they've done uh, to black people, right? Um, so, uh, generally speaking, from the 19th century up through the end of the civil rights movement, we see that um, Black free thinkers have been uh, much more numerous than we we're probably ever led to believe in, in any class or uh, educational setting that we might have been in. These were some of the key intellectuals and political activists and artor, artists and uh, writers uh, within African-American history, people at sort of the forefront of shaping black culture, of shaping black institutions, political life uh, and political organizations and their own um, political ideology, their own literary productions and, and cultural work was highly shaped uh, by their secular perspectives, showing us that um, free thought and secularism has been a much more prominent and important part of African-American cultural and political life than uh, we've ever been led to believe. Thank you very much.
That was Professor Christopher Cameron on this episode of Where We're Headed. If you missed his previous talk, you can go back to episode two and find his first presentation. In fact, if you missed any other episode, go back and check it out. It's good ground for the conversations that are coming up in future episodes. That's it for today. Please come back and join us and thanks for listening.